So um, this past Tuesday, our Lindell marching band, they do military march, one state again. And um, so here's what's cool. So military march, new thing for me. I am not a, a band person, so I don't understand all the details. But um, so I go to football games to, to watch my son play. I love watching and supporting my, my boy. And at a halftime in Texas, by the way, you guys do it a whole lot different and a whole lot longer than anybody else. Okay, just letting you know. Um, true. Okay, so a few weeks back, more than that, maybe a month, I'm sitting there and they're doing their thing and normal. It was good, but they were not in sync. Okay. And I got to talk to Caitlin. Caitlin goes. She's one of our GSM students, one of our Catalyst kids here at Grace. And she agreed with me. It was not perfect, not precise. It was bad. So they cleaned it up. And then um, this past Tuesday, they aced it in one state again. So here's what's cool. That precision necessary. And by the way, if you watch it, it is super cool because their shoes, they have these white shoes on and they're all in sync, in line. And there's one dude that's straight up seven foot and there's girls that are not even five foot and they are in line with one another. It is remarkable, like straight up super cool. Okay, so that's going on and that's just crazy. Okay, but a month ago, not so cool. Not so in sync. A lot of lack of precision. And it got me thinking, and by the way, if you know of anybody from our church, there's like 225 of those kids, um, part of the band, uh, which is awesome. Some of those kids go to church here, and if you know them, just let them know. You're proud of them, because they they represent our city well, they represent our church well, I'm just proud of them. But here's what it had me thinking. So Adam and Eve in the garden, as a result of the fall, like lack of precision took place. In fact, you could call it deformation took place. And so from that point on, as a result of the fall, there was a deformity that had happened. And what happened with the gospel, what Christ brought for us, is a picture of transformation, taking what was formerly deformed as a result of sin and the fall and bringing transformation. So a place of lack of precision where the shoes aren't lining up to a place where the shoes are lining up. And the way they line up has nothing to do with the person, but with the spirit of God in them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk today really about a people in 1 Peter. We've been dealing with this for a while now about a a people that had been called as transformed people to communicate the light of who God is in them in a deformed world around them with a lot of things that were happening. And so the question I want us to really kind of really process and really deal with and be honest personally and as a group is, does the world really see a difference in us? Like, really? Are we really different? I mean, not, not just the things, you know, with those moments where we're super self-righteous and we can, like, you know, be, be uh, like, internet, like, thumb gangsters and stuff like that um, and press send and post and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, like, do they see that we're different in the way that we love, the way that we care, the way that we invest and do good in community, the, the way that we make a difference? Do they see that? Or do they just see the people that are always bashing and are super self-righteous? What kind of people do they see? And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text. And we've been doing it, like First Peter, going verse by verse. And now we're in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to, to turn with me and look at it there. We're in chapter 4, and it starts off at the beginning. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Since then, so because of that, he suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In fact, what he's implying is this way of thinking that Christ had is your weapon that you're arming yourselves with. It's the very thing that you're going to use to combat what you go against in this world. And, and so it's that way of thinking, a mindset that each of us need to have if we're going to function rightly in a world that's deformed as those who are transformed. And so a few things just to kind of remind us, this way of thinking that Christ had in his mindset and the way he went about it, he committed no sin. We see earlier in chapter 2. In, in chapter um, 2 and 3, we see this picture that there's no deceit in his mouth. He didn't lie. And he didn't return evil for evil. In fact, what's crazy about Christ is he could have actually did it righteously, but he didn't. He didn't return. He didn't retaliate. He did not revile in return. In fact, what he did do is he continued to trust himself to him who judges justly. He left it up to his father. He said, Father, you got this. I'm going I'm to do this. And as a result, you're going to do something incredible. And so this idea of arming yourself, so you do this with a mindset like Christ had, and so you're preparing your minds for action, and not necessarily to fight, like some of us just want to outside. No, this isn't the, the thing. It's the idea of being sober-minded and self-controlled. It's reflecting Christ in the way that you do this. But you're doing so anchored in hope, as we see in 113, having your hope fully in the grace of God that's going to be revealed to us. And you got to understand in the midst of that, that there is passions, there are passions in your life that wage war against your soul. Things that are temptations for you that aim to undermine and usurp the work of God in you. So a few things we need to understand too that's so encouraging is the effect of Christ's suffering for us. We see it in chapter 2 verse 24 that Jesus bore our sins that we might die to sin. Like he did this work for us so that we too would die to our sin. And in chapter 3, verse 18, he suffered, Christ suffered to bring us, to reconcile us to God. In Romans 6, we see this. It says, our old self was crucified. It died with him this, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, no longer enslaved to sin, but actually for one who has died has been set free from sin. But the thing is, do we live like that? Do we live as though we're set free? So keep reading. Um, just, just read verse 1 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, way, the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now a couple things there, you read that and you're like, okay, wait a minute. So if you're suffering, that means you've ceased from sin. So the opposite of that would be like um, you're still sinning and you're not suffering. So I'm, just not, I'm not going to, um, to stop sinning. So that I don't have to suffer. Well, that's not what's in play here. It's a certain kind of suffering that he's alluding to and cease from sin here, which we're going to refer to in a moment, this list that we'll have in verses 3 through 4. The, the piece here is that everybody suffers, but this particular kind is one that happens as a result of stopping doing what the unbelievers were doing. And then verse 2 says this, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And you can underline that phrase, will of God, because we've already seen it three other times in First Peter, but it's important to see here as well. Many of us look for this mysterious calling or will of God for our life. And by the way, it's not that mysterious. You just need to be able to read. It's here. This is the will of God for you, is that you would no longer live for the human passions, but you would actually live for God. Because... You're been, you've been transformed. You have new life, and now you're going to live 
transformed by that. So a few things that, that kind of correspond with that that we see in other places. Again, living for the will of God, not human passions. And those human passions are desires that are sinful. Will of God we see in chapter 2, verse 15 says this, doing good is the will of God. Okay? In 2.21 it says this, following in Christ's footsteps is part of what you've been called to. In chapter 3, verse 17, suffering for doing good is God's will. Like, so that we understand that this is the picture here of the will of God, is that we are doing good, that we're suffering, we're following in his footsteps, chasing after him. So let's pick up in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 6. This is where it kind of gets a little like, whoa. Um, So in in verse 3, it says this, 4, which is letting us know this is why or because. So, because the time that is past suffices. Okay, that time that is past suffices. That's before you trusted Jesus. And the question is, haven't you sinned enough? It says, so for the time that um, is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, and Gentiles here isn't a race thing. It's speaking of those who are unbelievers. For doing what the unbelievers want to do. What do they want to do? They want to live lives living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. These are just examples. Now, the thing I I want us to catch here, first of all, these unbelievers, they're surprised that you don't want to participate in it, so they malign you. And the reality is, we'll see in verse 5, they're going to have to give an account for their way of living. But these examples are just examples of deformation. This is what deformation looks like. It looks like sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and it calls it like a flood of debauchery. Now, the thing I want you to catch here, you read this and you're like, I'm safe. He didn't list anything I struggle with, so I'm good. I don't think so. Sensuality here is a picture of immoral behavior. Like, is there immorality in your life? Whether it's your actions or your thoughts, is there immorality there? Passions here is a picture of your lusting for drunkenness. And it is just, it's talking about excess, not just with alcohol. Orgies, okay. Um, Drinking parties, lawless idolatry, the idea of idolatry that many of us struggle with. Let's just be real. Like, straight up in this room, many of us have like little altars set up in our life. Sometimes it looks like our spouse. Sometimes it looks like our kids. Sometimes it looks like our sports team, our bank account. But we've got them. And what I want us to understand is that this is is legitimate pictures of deformation. And though we may not have listed your thing, this isn't an exhaustive list. And so as we read this text, I want us to just walk through it again. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry with respect to this, the world is surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And that debauchery is wild and destructive living. And so what they do is they malign you. Malign here is they're degrading you, they're belittling you, they're talking about you, they're, they're really degrading who you are because you don't participate in that same type of deformation. 
And the reality, like deeper, is that these unbelievers are maligning themselves with these sins. These things are like bringing chaos and calamity to themselves. These things that they're doing and participating in is not good news. They may seem attractive at the moment, but it's not redemptive. And it does bring chaos and calamity to their life. So as believers, like, what, how do we respond to this? And that's the thing we want to get to. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Yes, we may be maligned. We may go through this particular type of suffering, but we need to understand that we need to love those who have maligned us, and we need to make a defense for the hope that we have. We learned this last week in chapter 3, verse 15. So it's important that we see it. It says, verse 5, but they will, these people that are maligning you will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're going to have to account for their behavior. And then verse 6, it says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. So that you understand this isn't preaching to dead people. It's preaching to those who were alive but are, have now passed away. The, the tense in the language is who are now dead, though they've heard already. It says, here's, here's the point, is that though, that though judged in the flesh the way people are because they died, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so just to, some ways of saying this is that those that have already died but trusted in the gospel, they were destined to die like all people are, yet will live eternally with God. Or another way of saying this, is it because this gospel that you even believed was also preached to those who have died already, though it looks like to men that you are judged, you will live in the spirit as God does. And then chapter 4, verse 7 through 11 says this, the end of all things is at hand. Now, this phrase, the end of all things is at hand, it's important for us to see because this is a picture of the return of Christ when the end or culmination of all this is at hand and Christ returns. And by God's grace, hopefully we see it in our lifetimes and that would be phenomenal and we get to see him. So some things that we need to understand about the end of all things, it's referring to the picture of Christ coming again. It is a culmination of this age. The thing that we need to see is a sense of urgency, not a sense of fear. Some of us, when we think about these things, it's a sense of fear. Many of us grew up with movies and TV shows and, and books that, that really kind of like propped up the picture of fear. No, it's urgency. It's an urgency for those that don't know the Lord yet. It should, do, it should put some gas in your evangelism tank and make you want to share this good news of what God has done to transform you. That he would show his mercy to you. Fear, not, not the option. In fact, if anything, it should drive even more anticipation. It says, for those who loved his appearing, like this is good. This is something we look forward to. When we get to see him face to face, to know as we've been fully known. So anticipate that. So as the text, it says, the end of all things is at hand. And then it says, therefore, and here, now we get to look at some things. And these are pictures of transformation. We've already looked at distinctives of deformation. Let's look at distinctives of transformation. Therefore, be self-controlled. And each of these things that I'm about to list here are all things that are empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This isn't anything we could just sign up for and say, ah, that sounds good, put me, for, put me down for that. No, this is the work of the Spirit of God in us making this happen. So therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We'll deal with that in a moment. 
Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since or because, and here's the thing I love, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's a reference to Grumpy Smurf, if you've ever watched the Smurfs. Okay. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here's why. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The work of Christ in you glorifies God. And then it closes with this thing that we see in Scripture a lot. It's called a doxology, a word of praise. That's the two words put together for doxology. And it says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So these pictures of just distinctives of what a transformed life looks like. Let's break these down. And these are in contrast to the things of deformation that we see in verses 3 through 4. The first one is one, a person who is self-controlled. To be self-controlled, your, your life is under control. You're taking every thought captive. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes my thoughts take me captive. This is the flip of that. This is where you take every thought captive and you own it and you process it and you say, that is not true what I'm thinking there. And you rebuke thoughts that you know don't correspond to reality, to truth. And so you take every thought captive. You, you live your life not by impulse or being reactionary. Anybody like fly off the handle? Well, talking about you. To be self-controlled, you're, you're fleeing from sin. You're not allowing the maligning from unbelievers to cause you to compromise because you're self-controlled. Being sober-minded here is thinking clearly about sin, like you see it for what it is, about the, the temptation of sin. You're, you're sober-minded. And, and notice this phrase, sober-minded, versus what we see in drunkenness. And Peter is definitely using a contrast here on purpose. Be sober-minded about the effects of sin in your life. Like, if I do this, this will happen. And you're sober-minded and you're thinking through that. And and here's the other thing is that you're sober-minded so that what you deal with from other people on the outside, the attacks that they bring, so that you don't lose hope. Sober-minded is a picture of you being anchored in reality. And then the next distinctive is that you keep loving one another earnestly. This idea of earnestly means you are real and genuine in your love. You're not just doing that, uh, well, God bless you. That's where I'm from. That doesn't mean God bless you. It means something else. This is genuine, authentic love for, for another. It says when you love like this, what happens is you begin to see offenses done against you differently. In fact, what it says is it covers a multitude of sins. This kind of genuine love for one another like covers a multitude of sins, which let's just put it this way. So say an offense is done against you, like a wound. And that wound is like a forest fire. 
But if you're operating in this earnest love for one another, what happens is that love takes the oxygen out of the fire. And when the oxygen's out of the fire, the fire doesn't exist. It has no power. It does not destroy. And that's the picture here is that love covers this. And so what happens is that the offense sometimes just get, gets overlooked. I love you. I know that hurt and what you did, you meant evil, but I'm going to love you past that. Or, or sometimes this love, it, it forgets. One of the greatest things about my wife is her memory. It's not good. And that's why we're at tw- almost 22 years of marriage because, whew, praise the Lord for her memory. I'm so, we, we, I mean, we have literally said that to, to one another. And then here's the other one, is that by God's grace, loving one another earnestly, covering a multitude of sins, like even though it, you may overlook it or may forget it, you always forgive it. Because you know that you've been loved that much, that you've been forgiven much so that you forgive much. You've been blessed, so you be a blessing. And so this is the picture. It's responsive um, to what God has done. And that's a distinctive of a transformed life. And then flowing from that, the next thing it says is to show hospitality. That word hospitality in the Greek means this. It's crazy. It means love of strangers. That's what someone who is hospitable. They love strangers. They treat outsiders like insiders. They treat those who aren't family like family. They treat those that malign them like they're part of the family. And they do so, which is crazy, even when they're being inconvenienced. And they do it without grumbling. Which, by the way, is, is one of the areas of distinctives that me and two of my kids are not great at. We don't show hospitality well within the three of us. You got a lot of kids, you got a lot of options of bad things. Um, and one of those traits is, is grumbling. But you don't know what, I, right? In the form that it takes is shown through love. So that picture of grumbling, we're going to really expound on that in a moment. But the last distinctive of those who've been transformed as they serve one another. When you serve one another, what you're doing is you're reflecting Jesus who served you. You're, you're taking the towel like he did in John 13, and you're wrapping yourself in that, and you're taking the dirtiest part of the other person. And you're saying, you know what? I forgive you. So he washes their feet. And then it says, I love this, it says, for the sake of your prayers. And so if you're self-controlled, if you're sober-minded, then what happens is you're praying appropriately. You're also praying effectively, more focused, because you are self-controlled. You are sober-minded. And and as a result of being sober-minded and self-controlled in your prayers, then you're in touch with reality. You understand the good of what God's bringing You understand the grace in that moment for the sake of your prayers. 
So last week I read from Philippians 2 and I read from verse 1 to verse 11. Verse um, 1 through 5 really deal with how we respond in light of the fact that we have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ from verse 6 through 11 gives us an incredible picture of who Christ is and what he did. And then verse 14 and 15 says this of Philippians 2. Do all things, in light of the gospel, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I memorized it in a different translation, without arguing or complaining. Here's why. Verse 15, that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish, which is implying that grumbling and disputing is a blemish. (laughs) <laughs> right? Just, just break it down. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And in that twisted and crooked generation, those who are deformed, right? That's, that's the, the vocabulary we're working with. You will shine as those transformed among whom you shine like lights in the world. You shine as lights in darkness. Now, very akin to what we've talked about before, and I'm gonna re- replay it for us in Matthew 5, 11 through 16, Jesus speaking here. He says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Malign you is the, the same idea here. Malign you against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, which by the way is the opposite of grumbling. Heads up. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he reminds them of two pictures of who they are. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he says in another way, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, and this is who we are, as those been transformed in the midst of people who are deformed. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Like we, we show this light in dark places so that people will see him. We do good works with joy in the face of inconvenience, in the face of maligning, in the face of suffering. Why do we do that? Because it gives a picture of the gospel. Now, I want to explain this. It's gospel reflection. It's not for God's favor that we do this. It's from God's favor that we do this. We do good things from a sense of acceptance and value from him. And why do we do it? We do it as a witness to those who don't know the Lord yet, those who are still deformed, that can be transformed by the work of the gospel that we too have experienced. We see this picture and call for good deeds. In in chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, to do good deeds so that people see that God is glorious. We do good in chapter 2, verse 15. We see it in chapter 2, verse 20, we do good. Chapter 3, verse 6, do good. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, have good behavior. These are all things that reflect light to a lost and dark world. And then it talks about the gifts of the Spirit. If you will go back with me just briefly, right? Verse 10, it says, as 
Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, multifaceted grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And here's the purpose. Remember it. In order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so... As we're closing, the, the picture of speaking, you're speaking the words of God. And what you're doing in that is you're ministering grace to the hearer with God's word. And the one who serves, you're serving by the power of God to minister grace, right? So that the one who hears it gets to experience God's power. So why do we do this? So that God gets the glory. Because he deserves it. Well, how does God get the glory? Let me break it down for you. Formerly, you were deformed and you were going after your own way. In fact, doing things that you are now ashamed of, Romans tells us. And God took you from your deformed state. And by his grace, through his mercy, through the power of his spirit, he has transformed you into becoming like his son. Like this, he says, God's grace through God's gifts, both speaking and serving, are saturated by the word of God and depended, depending utterly on the strength of God. It's this work of you being a vessel in which God's grace and mercy flow through. The question is, do people really see a difference in you? Really? Do they really see one who has been transformed by the work of the gospel? Not one that just has like a little bit of a veneer that looks a little shinier than theirs. But do they see that we're different in the way that we love? By the way that we reject sinful behavior? Do they see that we're different by the way that we love other people? Does the world see that we're different by the way that we show hospitality and love for the stranger? Do people see that we're different by the way that we serve one another? And so in the midst of this journey through 1 Peter, which is kind of a playbook, not just for them in the first century church, but also for us, I really believe that we've got an opportunity to learn some things an opportunity to apply some truths about what it looks like to be a light in dark places. And we've been called to this. We have been called to this. This is not a solo project. We're together in this. And we use our varied gifts of God's grace for the benefit of the body of Christ, but also for those that don't know him just yet. So let's pray and trust these things to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your kindness. We praise you for the work of your gospel in us. We pray, Lord God, as you are transforming us, Lord God, that we would understand that we need to be grateful for the fact that we're no longer under distinctives of deformation. But, Lord God, you've changed us. So, Father, we thank you for that. Help us reflect that to those around us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, I'm so grateful. It means so much to me that we get to serve alongside of you. We love you. Go in Jesus' name. Have a great week.